1973, Marilyn and Maurice Bailey were an English couple living in, in England, and they kind of came to the stage of their life where they could, they could make some changes to do something different. Retirement was, was coming up around the corner, and, and they had this dream of sailing from England to New Zealand and, and moving and living in New Zealand. And so they did it. They sold their house, uh, used that money to buy a yacht, sold off a lot of their, their stuff, really only kept the things that they could put on the boat to move with them. And they started their, their journey from England across the Atlantic Ocean, and they're headed towards New Zealand. It's going to be uh, over a year's worth of, uh, of voyages. The first half of their trip through the Atlantic, no problems. They crossed through uh, the Panama Canal in February of that next year. And then everything changed. They got out into the Pacific Ocean, and they were down uh, below the yacht, and they felt this huge impact that shook everything. Um, and of course, when you're out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, <laughs> that's not a feeling you want to have, right? And so they run up, uh, run up on deck, and they see a whale diving and realize that this whale has hit their boat and ripped a giant hole in the hole, and it is taking on water, like a real-life Moby Dick experience, except they didn't mess with the whale in the first place. As the boat's sinking, they get the life raft going, and it is sinking fast. They get as much food as they can. They end up in this life raft, life raft with a couple of days of food and a compass, and that's, that's it. And so they're now on the open ocean, an inflatable raft, quickly run out of food. As they tell their story, they talked about how they, they, they fished for food, they caught birds, and they caught turtles, and that's what they ate, which, which you know, when you think about it, sounds cool, I guess, but I mean, if you're in that, like I'm sitting there thinking in real life, I'm on a raft floating in the Pacific Ocean with hardly anything. How, how do you catch fish and how do you catch birds? Right? I mean, I mean that's, that's a difficult thing to do. They survive by collecting rainwater, which again, you don't think about the fact that, that means they were on the Pacific Ocean in an inflatable raft during storms and during rain. I mean, that scary type moments. They said, as some days went by, they, they realized that their, their raft was losing air. They were uh, sunburned, much, much worse than I am this morning, um, malnourished. I mean, this, this is a life or death situation. And then, and you know this has got to happen if I'm telling the story, they end up being like plagued by sharks, which no thank you, right? You know, on this inflatable raft. Here, here's one of the worst things. Over the course of their journey, being left out in the ocean, they saw seven different ships pass by that they tried to wave down and tried to get the people's attention and weren't seen. 117 days. That's four months. I mean, again, to put yourself in their shoes, think about what you did through June and July and August. I mean, summer stuff and kids going back to school, You've been to several football games, things like that. All during that time of those four months, it'd be on one lifeboat in the middle of the ocean. 117 days later, a Korean ship spots them, changes its course from where it's going, and comes and picks them up and saves them. They could hardly walk. They, could hardly, they couldn't eat solid food. They were that close to death. And, and so the question that like, I'm wrestling with, and, and what I want you to think is, 117 days, how many days would it take for you to lose hope. Like four for me. I think, I mean, that's like, I, I think I'm done at four. I'm like, it's over. Like, 
you know, when, when, when I've got to catch a turtle to eat it, it's like, I, 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 it's, we're not going to make it. The first storm that comes up, I'm thinking, the first dorsal fin of a shark, and I'm out. I mean, it's hope, hope would be quickly leaving this guy well before 117 days. And what I think about is this. I think we, we don't give hope enough credit. Hope is a lot like oxygen. You don't see it. It's not tangible. You don't think about it. You didn't wake up this morning thinking, oh, man, today's going to be a great day. Ooh, as long as we have oxygen for the rest of the, you know, through the evening. You, you don't think about it. You don't, you don't wake up going, today, I just need a little hope. Most of the time you don't. It's this intangible thing, but it's like oxygen. We have to have it to survive. In fact, if we don't have hope, it is easy to give up. In fact, 2013, the New York Times did uh, uh, an article about suicide, and they said that there are, uh, the, the, the research is showing that middle-aged American suicide rates is skyrocketing. Here, here's a couple of things that, that they point out in this article. From 1999 to 2010, the suicide rate among Americans ages 35 to 64, most of us in this room, rose by nearly 30%. More Americans now die of suicide than car accidents. That's 3,000 more people who die from suicide each year than car crashes. The most pronounced increases were seen among men in their 50s, a group in which suicide jumped by nearly 50%. The suicide rate for middle-aged men was three times higher than for middle-aged women. Now, here's what else they discovered as they are looking at this, because this is kind of scary research. They want to ask, why? And they said one of the main reasons why is because of the economic downturn that happened during this time and the ability to gain prescription painkillers that's much easier. But that was a lot of the, the hows or, or, or the surface level wise. The article also went in and said if you dig down deep, it was because at this time of life, middle-aged Americans were looking back and reflecting on their life and saying, my life hasn't met the expectations that I thought it would have. And here's what they said, and I don't have hope. Now, if, you're, if your life's ever been touched by suicide, I mean, you know that's a, a heavy thing. Sometimes I, I have friends whose life have been touched by suicide, and just when you bring up the topic, maybe like this, I mean, it brings emotions to the surface because suicide causes some deep wounds for people. But, but understand this, when we're talking about suicide, and I don't want to use extreme language, but I'll say, I'll say this. People don't take their life because their life got bad. People take their life because they can't see their life getting better. They, they don't see that there's hope at the end. It's not everybody goes through bad times. Everybody's got valleys. We've all experienced that. Even somebody who's taken their own life, the, the bad time that they were in was not the first bad time they were ever in in their life. But they got to a point where they had no more hope that the bad would ever go away. And that's why hope is so important to us. That's why hope is like oxygen. And it's not just in, in, in those big, heavy topics like that. We see it in things that are, are still heavy, not life or death. But you look at, at friends, or some of you have even experienced divorce. You've been married, divorced. You have friends that have been married and divorced. And you would say, I mean, I think every one of us would say, on the day that we got married, we weren't like hedging bets. We weren't, we weren't thinking, I'm going to give this a, you know, X number of years. Because at that moment, we had a lot of hope for our future. 
Our family was gathered around us, and, and we were in love. But, but as time went on, for whatever reason, and there, there, there's probably all kinds of different reasons, but, but the relationship came to a point where it just wasn't bad. And again, every marriage has bad times. It came to a point where you or your spouse said, I don't see any hope of this ever getting better. And, and that's when we make some of those major decisions. And you see it not just in, in, in those heavy things. You, you see it if you watch football on a Saturday or, or if you watch football today. There'll, there'll be a team out there that's going to have all of their starters out there, and, and, and they're going to get to a point in the game where the coach, the, the, there's going to be a team that's so far behind. They're so far down that they're going to pull their starters, and they're going to put other guys in to start getting some playing time experience. And you know what, you know what you're experiencing? Hopelessness. That's exactly what it is. It, 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 there's a point where the coaching, the coaching staff goes, you know what? There is absolutely no chance for us to win this, so you guys come sit before you get injured, and we'll send these guys in. But they didn't send in the guys that didn't start the game thinking, well, these guys are going to be much better in the second half of today than they've ever been before. No, it was, it was hopelessness that set in. So where do we find hope? If it's that critical to us and, and we don't think about it a whole lot, where do we find hope? Well, we're going to look at a passage in Ezekiel chapter 37 this morning. And so I want you to flip there. If you were here with us two weeks ago, we were in Ezekiel chapter 4. And really, we're not Purposely going through Ezekiel, it just so happened that our ministry team that helped us come up with the idea of Stranger Things, and, and I told them, hey, give us some passages of Scripture that, that when you've read, you go, wow, that's weird, that doesn't make sense. And uh, So we've been handling some of those. So if you're joining with us, that's, that's kind of what the Stranger Things is. Ezekiel 4, our students had just said, hey, we don't understand, we've read in the Bible before where, where this guy named Ezekiel lays down on his side for 13 months. We talked about that two weeks ago. He was bound up, and then after 13 months, he switched over to the other side for three more months and laid bound. And we read the story about how, how he made bread out of, out of beans and lentils and things like that, and he, and he cooked it over manure. And I mean, it's this 16-month illustration that he was giving to the people. And what we discovered two weeks ago was that, that Ezekiel was letting him know, hey, listen, there's going to become a, there's going, a, a siege that's going to come to Jerusalem. You have saying to the Israelite people, you have done your own thing for so long. You have disobeyed God for so long. You've rejected him and, and, and mocked him and done your own thing. And he sent prophet upon prophet upon prophet to come and warn you and say, get back right in relationship with me because this relationship is broken. And I've been offering mercy, but mercy is going to come to an end. And so Ezekiel does this whole illustration for, for 16 months. And, and, and what he told him is this, there's a siege coming. There's going to be suffering and then there's going to be starvation before it's all said and done. So that's the picture that he gives them. And we, we walked through that. And we talked about how far would we go to tell people that we love what, what God has in store for them. But we pick up Ezekiel 37 and we fast forward it into the future. It's all happened. The siege has happened. Jerusalem has fallen. The, the people ha, have been taken away, most of them, into, into Babylon. They've experienced the starvation. They've gone through the suffering. And their hope that they had. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we said there were, some, there were some prophets saying to Ezekiel and saying to the people, God will not let bad things happen to us because we're his people. He, God's not going to let his reputation be ruined by Babylon. And, and God basically said to Ezekiel, you've already ruined my reputation. So, so Babylon's not the issue here. And so these people have gone from, hey, we are the people of God and, and, and we, are, we have the favor of God and everything's going well, even though they were, they were worshiping idols and they weren't doing anything of obedience. All of a sudden, their family members are killed. 
Their t- other family members are taken away. They're impoverished. And, and the temple, the place that, that they symbolize is where God, who is their God, lives over them, has been destroyed. So they're in a bad, bad place. In Ezekiel chapter 37, in verse, let me get there. One, it says this. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. Now, there's a couple times through Ezekiel's story where he uses this phrase that the hand of the Lord was upon me. And, And every time he does that, it's this vision that he's about to say. I think so when our kids read this, they miss that, and they're like, when they read what's about to happen, they're like, how in the world did that happen? That's a stranger thing. So when Wednesday night, when we go through this with them, some of them are going to be disappointed because it's not going to be so weird when they realize it's a vision. It's like a vivid dream that Ezekiel's having. And so the Spirit of God takes him, he gives him this, this picture, he puts him in this valley, and it's full of bones all over the place, human bones. Verse 2, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bone came, bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived. And stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now, so you can see the disappointment that's going to happen on Wednesday night. Because when you read this story and you're like, that is crazy. That's a stranger thing. When you find out it's a vision, it's a dream, it's like, oh, man, we wasted a whole Wednesday. You know, we could have had you given something different. But there's a great, there's a great truth packed away in this. And so we wanted to handle it. But Remember, remember the context of what's happening. The people are spiritually desolate. And God takes Ezekiel and he walks him around and he gets this tour of these bones. And it's a picture of where, where, where the Israelites, or the people of God, Judah, it's where they stand today. They're dead, spiritually empty. And here's the thing. It's not just that they are a valley of bones. Ezekiel makes, helps us to understand the, the image he has, not just bones, he goes back and says they are dry bones. They've been bleached by the sun. They've been here for a long, long time. There is absolutely no hope. You ever felt like that? Like in your life? Like it feels like this. I'm praying and I'm begging God to do something and he's absent. I've tried and, I, and, and, and I've done what I think I need to do, but I just, I just can't get a glimpse of hope over the horizon. This passage is for you, it's for us. And, and as we read it, we see that God asks Ezekiel this question. 
He says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? That's an easy answer. That's an easy answer. The answer is no, of course not. And if I, if I had any thought that they could live, it's been shattered by the fact that I've noticed that they are dry bones. They are all there. I mean, it, these, these have, death has been here for an extremely long time. Life does not come out of death. It, the, the answer is no. That, that, that's the logical conclusion that every one of us would answer, and that's the logical conclusion that Ezekiel would, would, would feel. And Ezekiel's answer is a little bit different, though. He doesn't say no. I mean, if you're standing before God who creates all things and who is the miracle worker, and God says, hey, look at all these bones. Can these bones live? There's a, there's a second guessing in you that goes, I, 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 sh- I think no, but. And Ezekiel gives the, the only answer he can give. Oh, Lord, you know. <laughs> That's a good answer, right? He, he doesn't go no, and God go, oh, really? Well, let me show you this. And he doesn't say, well, yes. And God goes, That's not the point, Ezekiel. You know, Ezekiel goes, Oh, Lord, you know. You're the one that controls that, and that's exactly the point that we're supposed to get. In a moment where hopelessness is is as clear as it could be, that there is no life, Ezekiel, because of his relationship with God, has this ounce, and he says, you know what? Lord, you know. I suppose in a moment of ultimate hopelessness that if you're here, that something could change. And that's the right answer. And that's the point that, that, that God wants us to understand is that life, real life, comes from the Spirit of God. That hope is always present when the Lord is present. In fact, the only real hope, the only real hope for life is found in Jesus. It's not found in money. It's not found in vacation days. It's not found in power. It's not found in having great kids who are going to give you a future and grandchildren and take care of you when you're, when you're in the nursing home. Where those things are not hopeful because all of those things may fail. But when Jesus Christ is a part of the equation, hope is in the answer. And, and that, that's the message. Not, this goes back to the Old Testament where God says, listen, if you go back to Ezekiel 36, the chapter before, we see that the people are at rock bottom. And God says, you are going to be desolate and, and you will have nothing. And this is, this is going to be horrible. Chapter 37, but with me, with the Spirit of God, there's hope. And I'll tell you what, some of us in this room, I would say just by numbers, I'm not talking to you because I know your story. I'm just saying by numbers, I guarantee you there's some, some people in this room that came in this morning that go, you know what, I, that's what I need. I, I, I see, the, I see the, the flame on the candle going out on my hope. And God says, you know what, it's never going to go out if I'm involved in, the, in your story. There, there's an end that I've already written and I've got plans for you. doesn't mean that we're not talking health and wealth and God's going to give us everything that we dream. But God says, when I'm with you, there's going to be hope. There's going to be blessing. I'm going to walk with you through, through the difficult times. There may be some consequences for decisions that you've made. I mean, your sense of hopelessness that you're feeling might very well be because of your own doing. And it doesn't mean that God's going to come in and go, well, hey, no more consequences because now you want hope. But God's going to say, you know what? I'll walk with you and I'll be the hope bringer to the situations that are coming that are bad. Don't forget, Ezekiel's in the middle of an exile and good things aren't coming for several more years. They're not getting out of their situation for a long time. But God says, you know what? I will bring life to you 
through my spirit, and you can have hope in that. So, so what's the takeaway? What, what do we do with it? Let me give you a couple of things. One is this. I would encourage you not to give up on quote, unquote, dead people. I mean, that may be you. You may be the person who goes, I think you're talking about me. If that's you, we're going to talk about that in a few more minutes, some things that you can do if you're right there and the flame on the candle is about to be extinguished and you go, what do I do? I want to step into hope. I don't want to be where I'm at. But before we get to you, let's just take a minute to say there's some people in our lives that you have come to a point where you've given up hope on them. Maybe it's a friend or a family member. Maybe they're, they're far from the Lord and you've been praying for them for a long time and, and you've prayed for years and, and as you've prayed, you haven't seen them walk closer to the Lord, you've actually seen them walk further away. They're further from the Lord than, than they ever were and, and you've gotten to the point where you go, you know what, I, I've expended so much energy, given so much time into, the, into this person that, that I, I just, I can't go any further. I encourage you not to give up. Because the Lord's at work. You may not see it in their life, but God is doing something. I don't know if you remember stories. Probably predates most of us. We were probably elementary, junior high, high school. You remember the name Carla Faye Tucker? This is a picture of her, 1983. Looks like a normal person. She took a pickaxe to two people and killed them. And the, the, the scary thing was she didn't just kill two people with a pickaxe. She laughed the entire time she was doing it. She was the first woman sentenced to execution uh, since the Civil War in Texas. you imagine what her family felt like? Going through those trials, going through not know, knowing that, that, that your daughter, or I don't know, I don't know all of her, if she was married or whatever, but whatever those family relationships were, that she, she snapped. I mean, she was crazy. She killed two people with a pickaxe. That's, that's absurd. She's on death row. And at some point as a family member, after you've been through kind of the ringer and you, you're related to her and everybody knows, and you go, man, I just want to wash my hands of her. I don't, I don't want anything to do with her. That, that would kind of be the normal feeling. But you know that before she was executed, while she was in prison, God was at work. And she met Jesus Christ and had a life-transforming relationship with him. In fact, the people that were gathered around her and, and the people that were in the know said afterwards, they said, listen, we know the old Carla Faye and we know the, the new Carla Faye and she is absolutely different. One of her last words before she was executed, she said this. She said, I'm going to meet Jesus face to face today and I love you all very much and I look forward to seeing you when you get there as well. That's a flip of a switch. When you're on death row, there's no hope. After you've, you've had all of your uh, appeals, there's no hope. When you're the family member and you're looking at it, there's no hope. But Jesus showed up and God was at work. And while her life on this earth had tragic moments and ended tragically, it wasn't the end of the story because there was eternity involved. And her eternity was hope-filled. And that person that you're going, man, I'm done with. I, don't, I give up on them. That There's no hope for them. God is at work. Don't give up. 
Keep praying. Keep loving. Keep encouraging. Keep being Jesus to that friend or that family member and trust God to do what God's going to do. That person's life may be a valley of dry bones, but the Spirit of God can change things. Let's talk about us. What's the takeaway for us when we're, when we're, when we're in that spot? And we go, man, I, I just I can't go any further. God, I have no more hope. Here, here's what you need to focus on, and it's this. It's that the Word of God is what causes life. Go, go back to Ezekiel chapter 37. Look, look at verse 4. Ezekiel's gotten a tour, and here's what it says in verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is what was spoken over those bones and is what, what made this miraculous thing and this vision take place. And when we talk about this a lot, I mean, I, I don't know, a couple times a month, we'll reference uh, quiet time guys, devotional guys we put out on the table for parents and for students so that, you can, so that you can get into the Word. It's because the Word of God is what brings hope. It's the Word of God the Holy Spirit uses to change us. Uh, some of you know my story. And I don't tell it a whole lot, but it, it comes out. You know, my, when I was five, my, my parents divorced. My dad, biological dad, walked out. was gone. What, wasn't involved, didn't, didn't do a whole lot, even though we lived in the same town. It, it was one of those things, you know, maybe today, I, and I guess it was the same then, you would think that if, if a mom and dad lived in the same town, you'd be splitting some time. I had, my, my dad had no rights, no expectations. I would go stay with him from time to time, but only because I wanted to or my mom said I could. But he just wasn't a good dad. An alcoholic, angry. I, I will tell you that, that I went through growing up just going, man, I, I don't feel like he is a dad. I never came to birthdays. Didn't come when I got married. Didn't come when we had children. I mean, he was, he was just not a great dad. And so through the journey of my life from five until, man, I don't know, I was in my 20s, there was some ups and downs and some roller coasters. You can imagine that. There were, there were some moments I remember in college just, uh, just having a yelling, screaming fight over the phone with him and, and, and hanging up and going, you know what, I, I'm done with him. I, I'm not going to have anything to do with him. I, I, I wash my hands clean of it. And I, and I was going into ministry, youth minister for several years. I think I was here when the, when the word of the Lord transformed me and brought hope into a relationship. And I'll never forget, we were at a youth camp. And at youth camp that night, there was a, they were doing the Lord's Supper. And the, the, the camp pastor said, hey, tonight, if your dad is in the room, if your dad is in the room and he's a camp sponsor, he's an adult here, I want you to take communion with your father tonight. I know you might be sitting with your friends, but I want you to get up, I want you to find your dad, and I want you to go take communion with him. We had a, a girl, one of our students from Liberty Hill, um, that his parents have been going through divorce, and uh, she came over to me and said, would you, would you stand in that role with me tonight? And I humbly said, yes, and we went and, and took communion. And it was in that moment that God began to use his word to change me. And I realized that Scripture says in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. I mean, if you're going to miss something, I mean, get the Ten Commandments. They're pretty famous. And one of them is honor your mother and your father. And it wasn't, the Ten Commandments weren't written to children. They were written to adults. That was a word to me, to honor your mother and father. And I remember having a conversation with God. And while I'm here at this, at this moment with this girl who's having dad issues, and I'm realizing, I'm realizing man, I, I've got some dad issues. And God's going, you need to honor your father. And I'm having this conversation with God going, why? Like, 
What, he hasn't done anything to deserve it. And then the scripture starts pouring in, and I start remembering things, and, and, and what the truth of scripture is, that God goes, oh, let's talk about deserving things, shall we? So you deserve me, a heavenly father. Okay, no. Yeah. Let's not talk about deserving. Let's talk about what is right. And my word says that you're to honor your father. And I had to deal with some things going, but God, he's, you know, he's just wronged me so many times. And you know what the scripture says? Peter went to Jesus and how many times we should, should we forgive? Seven times? Hebrew numerology, and we don't know if Peter meant this exactly, but we can, we can lean in. Seven is, is the idea for completion. It, it's, and so I, we don't think Peter was actually saying, God, should I, should I forgive somebody seven times? But he's saying, should I just keep forgiving them until forgiveness is complete? And Jesus said, not seven, but 70 times seven. You need to forgive infinitely upon infinite. And all of a sudden, the Word of God is, is just confronting my behavior and my life. And I was able to leave camp and go home, process some of that, talk to my wife, and we started rebuilding that relationship with my biological father. And it was difficult because he lived far away, didn't have a phone. I mean, he had to drive to his town in hopes of seeing him. About five or six years after that, and I got to share the gospel with him multiple times, even though he always said, I'm not, I don't want to talk about that. But I got to share the gospel with him. We got to, I got to say, hey, I love you. Uh, the past is the past. I've forgiven you. And our relationship was, was doing well. And about six or seven years later, he passed away. And you know what the beautiful thing is? Is that at 41 years old right now, with all kinds of baggage, probably back then, God's dealt with so much of it, but I don't regret. Because the word of God penetrated my life and transformed me. And it brought hope. It brought hope that I know that the end of the story is written by a perfect God. It brought hope. The scripture says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It brought hope because I know that heaven awaits this, the end of this broken place that this broken person lives in. And I am living towards that. You need to know the word of God. You need to let it penetrate your heart. You need to let it transform you. And that brings us to the third thing. If you're going, man, I need, I need a shot of hope tonight or today, it's be obedient. I want you to look at, back at Ezekiel 37 one last time. Verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. I mean, granted, it's a vision. But I think in the midst of the vision... I think it's a very real feeling for Ezekiel. I think as he writes this and he tells the story, I, don't, I think it's one of those visions or dreams where it seems in reality at the moment. And God tells him to do this crazy thing. I mean, think about it. God says, start preaching to the bones. Why? Like, why, why would you do that? That makes no, no sense. Sometimes God might ask you to do something that doesn't make sense. He might ask you to do something that's difficult. And Ezekiel's response wasn't, God, that's weird. Like, why? why? God says, prophesy over the bones. Say, the word of the Lord says this. And Ezekiel says, so I prophesied as I was commanded. I did what I was told to do. The Lord said, do this, and I did it. You know where hope comes from? It comes from walking intimately with Jesus. The more you know him, the better you know him, the more hope there is. Because the God of the universe begins to speak his truth into your life. You start to experience in the valley of the bones the, the, the risen Savior Jesus walking with you. 
But you, you know, one of the, the keys of just the spiritual disciplines that, that we need to do in order to experience God in his fullness is to be obedient when he tells us to do something. You see, that was the problem that predates this moment with Ezekiel. God had been saying for decades, for centuries to the Israelites, get your act together. Walk with me. Follow me. Obey me. Worship me. That's your side of the covenant relationship. And I'm going to be with you and pour out my blessing on you. And they weren't doing that. That was the issue. They were worshiping other gods. They were chasing after idols. When we start following the Lord, we start doing what he's called us to do. We start experiencing him. We start hearing him better. So it's not just knowing the word, but when you open up the word and the spirit of God speaks, he would do something. You know what? I, I, would, I would almost guarantee that as we've talked about forgiveness, that for somebody in this room, the spirit of God has leaned into you this morning and he's put somebody on your mind. Might've been your father. I don't know. Somebody that, that, that you go, yeah, forgiveness. Hmm. Don't know if I can. Let me tell you this. God has not promised it would be easy. He promised to be with you. He'd say his yoke was light and it is much lighter than trying to bear the world on your own. But if you will step into forgiveness, if you'll walk out of here this morning and call somebody that you need to call and say, hey, I just want you to know that the Lord is doing a work in me. I can't talk about it right now a whole lot, but I want you to know we've had some relationship issues and I want to move forward. I want to walk into forgiveness. I'm going to be asking the Lord to heal my heart and I know I might have hurt you and I'm going to ask for your forgiveness as I move that direction. You know how humbling that is? Satan will start whispering to you right now. Don't, you can't do that. Pride starts coming in. It's not my fault. I wasn't the one, I wasn't the one who wronged the person. I mean, you know what makes a marriage healthy? When you don't believe that you're wrong, but you can apologize for the situation, you can apologize for your part in it. When your spouse has, maybe your spouse is 99% at fault, but you realize that the way you handled it, the way you responded, what you did, your 1% didn't help. When you can go to your spouse humbly, when you believe and she knows you believe or he knows you believe, that, that, that you still think that way, and you go, listen, I, I responded wrong. Even though we're not through this fight and we haven't got, I handled it wrong. I shouldn't have yelled. I shouldn't have brought up the past. I shouldn't have, and so I'm going to ask you to forgive me in that area as we move forward. You know what happens when things like, wives, when you get, if, if you're married, when you get in the car, just explain what that does to you, to your husband. Help him understand. It changes everything. It's the word of God transforming us. So here's what I'm going to have us do. I want you to take, I told Ryan's just going to put on a song for a second. And we're not going to listen to the whole song. You're not even meant to listen to the song. It's just background noise. I just want you to spend a few minutes just with your head bowed. A minute, maybe two minutes at most. And I want you to ask the Lord this. God, what are you calling me to be obedient to? And if it's, and if you've got, if you've already got the answer already, and it's going to be hard. You just start talking to the Lord about that. Lord, I need strength. I need encouragement. I need somebody. I need some accountability. Because God, I am going to be obedient because I know through your word and through obedience to it that I start to experience hope. So let's do that. Will you hit that song for us, Ryan? And again, just quiet, just you on your own. If you want to bow your head, whatever you need to do, just a couple minutes of just talking to the Lord.
let me ask you to do something. Maybe as you're sitting in here this morning, things are going on in your life, and for whatever reason, you didn't connect, you didn't sense the Lord saying something to you. Would you make the commitment, if that's you, to go back to Ezekiel 37 this week? To open up the word and to to say, God, I don't want to move on from this passage until you've spoken to me through it. And if he's spoken to you this morning through that passage, and, and he's called you to do something, he's called you to think a different way, he's called you to believe stronger, he's called you to step out in faith, he's called you to do whatever he's called you to do, would you then make the commitment to not let a week go by without doing it, without being obedient, without getting into the Word so that it can transform you, without making the commitment not to give up on that person or what God is doing in your life. Because that's what my prayer is. That you would wrestle with God and that He would do great things in your life. I want to close with this quote. Ryan, you can turn the music, thanks. Dr. Jerome Groupman. Uh, works at Harvard Medical School, and he's done research. This is a picture of him, and this is what he said. Hit that quote. It's coming up next. He said, I think, he's a medical doctor. He said, I think hope has been, is, and always will be the heart of medicine and healing. We could not live without hope. Even with all the medical technology available to us now, we still come back to this profound human need to believe that there's a possibility to reach a future that is better than the one in the present. Research, medical research, that says that when people that come into the hospital for surgery with disease, facing death, that the people who come in with hope statistically do better in the medical world. Hope is a powerful, powerful commodity. And hope that you're going to get through the surgery will do you well. But the only real, lasting hope is found in Jesus. Because even if you walk in a surgery with hope and, and it helps your body do what it needs to do to get through that surgery, at one point, 100% of the time, 10 out of every 10 of us, will eventually die. But hope points us to the future of eternity with Jesus Christ. And that's what we are living Let me pray for us and then let you talk in some small groups for a few minutes. Jesus, I pray that you would be the hope bringer this week. Some of our teenagers, some of us as parents, God, that we are living, some of us in a valley of dry bones. We we haven't felt like we've heard from you in months. It's even hard to listen to this message about hope when we can't experience it or aren't experiencing it and can't put it kind of into its category. We can't just flip the switch today. But Lord, I pray that you would, man, you'd give us the courage not to give up. That, that this week we would get into the word and that your word and its power through your spirit would begin to change our hopelessness into hope, darkness into light. And Lord, as you reveal to us and as you speak to us, God, I pray that we would be obedient to continue in that journey, to see the blessing that comes from walking with you and the hope 
that is with it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you've got a few minutes. I want you guys to talk about this. In your small group, what does hope mean to you, your family? There's some questions in the app, or you can just wing it on your own.